HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Hello there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today we have uh, a a very special show. We're going to bring a film to you on the radio. Mm, How are we going to do that? It is a very special film. In fact, it's a tantalizingly delicious documentary that follows an 85-year-old master of sushi, a sushi chef. And we have with us in the studio the author and director, David Gelb, of this film. Welcome, David. Hi, Linda. And his editor, uh, Brandon driscoll Luttringer. Did I get that right? Yes, you okay. did. Okay, <laughs> good. And David, this is your this is your first film, correct? Yes, this is my first um, full length feature film. Well, what? Let me preface it for our listeners. This film was um, pr- had its U.S. premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival last week. Very great reception and uh, and terrific honor. And you've been at the Berlin Film Festival, and you're going to Sydney as well with this. Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. All Thank right. You. Well, let's. Tell us a little bit about what I, I was lucky enough to be able to see the documentary. And let me tell you, the one thing I have to say is do not go hungry because we, we walked out after that film ready to eat anything inside, but particularly longing for sushi. So tell us a little bit about what this film is. Well, basically, you know, I, I, I just love sushi um, very, very much. My, my mother, who uh, is here with us today. And I forgot to mention his mother and my dear friend and a foodie herself in the food world, Donna Gelb, is here. Yeah, so my, my mother um, kind of helped cultivate this, uh, this love for sushi when I was very young, um, when my parents would 
take me to Japan on my father's business trips, my mom and I would go to the department store and uh, I would gorge myself on cucumber rolls um, <laughs> when I was maybe two years old. And so ever since then, sushi has just been, you know, my absolute favorite food and I, I can't get enough of it. Um, my other passion is filmmaking. And so I thought, what a perfect, you know, I'd never seen a good sushi uh, documentary before. You know, I've seen the go clips on television and things like that, but n- nothing really kind of elevated. Um, so I thought it would be the perfect intersection of my two, uh, my two favorite things. And it, it would be my job to eat the best sushi in the world. So that's, that's kind of how it started. Well, I have to say this, this film does not strike me as your typical documentary at all. This is really an in-depth human story as well. But at the same time, we got this fabulous looking fish up front and central. It is just glistening and glorious and really tells the story of, of, of what it takes to be a master sushi chef. Now, we have to say that um, this sushi restaurant is the only sushi restaurant to receive three Michelin stars, correct? Uh, well, it is was it? the first. The first, actually. Okay. And the Another sec- one has gotten it? Yeah, the second um, sushi restaurant to receive three stars was um, opened by his apprentice, um, oh, Mi- yes. Mi- Mizutani. Yes. He's you know, a very well-known sushi chef. And I thought it only got two stars. Is incredible. <laughs> no, he, he was the second chef to get, um, to get three stars. Um, yeah. So this is so this film follows this eighty five year old master chef, okay, mm-hmm. and his restaurant is this exalted palace of raw fish, and it has only ten seats. Mm-hmm. This is a coveted reservation, no doubt, um, as the film brought out as well. How in the world did you? How did you gain entry into this restaurant? I mean, try to follow any other three-star you know, Michelin chef for a month or whatever you did. How did you become a fly on the wall in this place? Well, um, you know, originally I wanted to make the film about many different chefs. And um, it just happened that Jiro, you know, he's 85 years old, and his son is... Jiro Ono. Jiro Ono. And the restaurant is... It's su- called Sukiyabashi Jiro, which is located in Sukiyabashi. located in Ginza uh, in Tokyo, which is kind of the uh, where all the best, you know, top restaurants are in Tokyo. And yet it, it's kind of in the basement of it. It is. It yeah, is in the so- basement of an office building. Um, Kind of connected to the subway station, but actually Jiro um, would never want to move. He loves this location because uh, because of the um, air conditioning and the air purification system. The air is the same every single day, ah. so that's you know his, his part of his whole ethos is to keep everything as standard and uh, as and by standard I mean you know consistent um, so as possible. Alters the yeah exactly. So you know he senses the ups, you know the the, the slightest changes and, and things like that. Well, my question had been how how did you manage to become a fly on the wall, mm-hmm. um, so to speak? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is all thanks to the uh, the food writer um, Masuhiro Yamamoto um, in Tokyo, who uh, I met was introduced to through a colleague of my father's, and um, he is an old friend of Jiro's and convinced Jiro that making a film like this about him would be a good idea. Um, I, you know, told both Yamamoto and then later Jiro that, you know, I have no, I have no agenda. I'm a total blank slate. And all that I want to do is show the world what sushi is from, from your perspective, um, from Jiro's perspective. And um, I think that he, you know, he seemed, he seemed okay with that. And, you know, I really just every day, you know, I would come in and I, would do my best, you know, Japanese good morning and, you know, trying my best with the language and uh, trying to stay out of their way as much as possible. And they were just incredibly um, welcoming. And, you know, I would eat breakfast with them in the morning and, you know, just kind of 
as best as I could, try to become part of the team. Well, um, as you said, that, that this was... Oh, what I wanted to mention was that this film is all in Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, so translation was was a bit of a, a challenge as far as um, getting... I mean, the conversation is sometimes very quick, too. Mm-hmm. It's a film that I want. I need to go back and see again because I the first time watching it, of course, I, wanted, I didn't want to miss a thing. I wanted to read the subtitles, and, and yet I went and I wanted to see what was going on. But I feel as I was reading the subtitles, maybe I missed some of the, the shots that I wanted to go back and look at again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really, I really need to either put it on slow and watch it, or just watch it again purely for the visuals, because I have to say it is shot beautifully. It is really a beautiful, a beautiful film to watch. And so you were saying you followed this man, and, and you sat and had um, breakfast with them, and them being his son... Right, his son Yoshikazu, um, who's been at the restaurant for you know maybe thirty thirty years now. I think um, you know he's over fifty and, and started when he was uh, when he was eighteen. Um, and so there's this great kind of um, you know father son story because you know I mean if you can only imagine being the son of a of an absolute living legend like Jiro. I mean if you go to any serious sushi restaurant, um, they'll know who Jiro is, and there's a great there's an incredible reverence for him around the world. Um, and his son is, you know, kind of living in his shadow, in a way. Um, mm. You know, they still work at the restaurant together, and uh, kind of waiting for dad to step aside. <laughs> well, sort of. You know, he, they, he thought that. Uh, you know, in the film, he even says, "You know, I thought my father was going to retire a, lo- a long time ago." Um, but you know, Yoshikazu is an incredible is an incredible chef, and you know, he actually maybe when he was younger he was impatient, but now he just sees every day that he can work with his father as an opportunity to to learn more, to become a master, mm-hmm. the master himself. And then he also has a, a team of incredibly dedicated apprentices, um, one of which who has been there for twelve years, um, and you know, is a could absolutely be a you know a master sushi chef in his own right but now was he the one the young man who it took 10 years to perfect the the egg sushi yes that's correct um <laughs> 10 yeah, years the, they wouldn't accept it until it was perfect and it took him 10 years yeah uh-huh. and you know i think it's interesting that you know in the west egg sushi um tamago it's called uh is not really uh, a very popular sushi you know, people go to sushi restaurants and it's they want like fish. kind of like an aside, an extra on the side of the plate. Yeah, know? exactly. You know, so sometimes it's just a garnish. Um, you know, and people think, oh, well, I can make eggs at home. But actually, the egg sushi, you know, at a good sushi restaurant is incredibly delicious and incredibly sophisticated. And it's actually sort of the final test of the apprentice. When the apprentice is, a- after 10 years, he's allowed to attempt to make the eggs. And in the case of Nakazawa, our beleaguered 12-year apprentice, it took him about 200 attempts before he got it right. Um <laughs> And then at that point, you become a full-fledged chef. And I would have taken Jiro's I would eyes. have taken any of the rejects. They all look good to uh, me. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, the, the the scrutiny that Jiro looks at things is far beyond what the uh, a normal you know a normal nose and, and tongue can. And sense. this and this is, I think. I mean, to me, it was the main thrust of the of the film was the perfection, the the scrutiny that Jiro exerts on his everyday food and it's not everyday food but his everyday tasks and cooking to think that he stands there and cuts and produces sushi day in day out every day he misses it when he's not there i mean to me one would think oh my god that would drive me crazy but he's always striving for the next step it seems the next the next innovation the next move and he does he does innovate he does add different things correct mm-hmm. yeah i mean jiro's he, he's always looking to he's always looking for improvement but in 
he, his routine every every day is exactly the same. Perfection. Yeah. It's just perfect. Well, he know he he would never. He's looking for perfection, even. But he knows that he doesn't have it, you know. And this is kind of the the torment of, of the shokunin and a shokunin. Shokunin is, means chef. Or? A shokunin is a craftsman, so craftsman. it applies to you know potters and you know painters. Um, a shokunin is somebody who basically uses their hands um, in, in a craft and does the same thing every day, trying to create this kind of consistent level so that they can try to find improvement. So they're constantly, brutally, honestly evaluating their own work and looking for slight improvements over the years. Very zen attitude. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, this, and, he's, and he, of course, in order to, to achieve you know, the next level of, of, of getting closer to perfection, I mean, he has to be pretty tough with, his, with the apprentices, like we mm-hmm. talked about. Um, this comes out that, he, that he's a little bit, you know, sometimes he can be... Um, I don't know as harsh as is impatient. Impatient. I think. Okay. Yeah. We were talking earlier before the show about about something that he said that a chef has to have five. There are five basic attributes that a that a very good chef needs, and we were trying to remember all the five. Oh ones, yeah. But one of them was was what impatience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Masuhiro Yamamoto, who kind of was this incredibly poetic, um, incredibly poetic man. I've never heard of somebody speak so passionately about sushi or food at all, for that matter. Um, and he appears in the film sort of as our, as our, narr- as our narrator of sorts. He's a, uh, a restaurant critic and, and the food... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a food, food writer, writer and, you know, he's, Tokyo, a, yeah. he's a TV personality in Japan as well. Um, and, yeah, so he, ha- he, in his studies of food, have found that all of the best chefs have maybe five characteristics in common, um, the first of which being a determination to always be working at the top of their game. And then they also are trying to constantly improve what they're doing. So that would be the second. The third is cleanliness, that the restaurant must be absolutely spotless. Um, because if the restaurant doesn't feel clean, then the food is not going to taste good. Um, then the fourth attribute is um, impatience. And, you know, they are kind of, uh, the way Yamamoto describes it is that they work better um, as leaders than, you know, as followers. They can't be on the same level as the other people that work in the restaurant. They have mm-hmm. to be the boss. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, Hopefully, Brandon, who has watched the movie many more times than I have, um, can help us out with the. Was there a there was a what, fifth? Was there, was there a fifth one? It's it's hard to remember on the on the spot. We may it's, have. It's the fifth one that they're looking to uh, to constantly improve. I think. It may be also, and, and, and maybe they were doubling down on improvement. I think yeah. that that's possible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll amend it on the. The, the fifth website. one is basically that they're perfectionist, you know, and that they don't do don't don't basically do not you know take anything than the best. Yeah. From from any yeah the be- yeah. the fifth one is basically perfection you know the strive for perfection and that they they basically are perfectionists in their craft and in that sense they've mastered it to the level of the highest level of of their uh, of being a chef and then they're constantly you know just trying to um, chisel away at creating something even better than what they consider to be perfect in their craft and that I mean and that really sums up. Jiro, I mean, he really—you can see him as he as you as you followed him in, in his travels, and uh, and his son as well. I mean, his son is is kind of a, just a spitting image. I mean, you can yeah, see I him mean, travel through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Yoshikazu is is you know is very similar to his father. In fact, their sushi is um, is almost identical, which is which is amazing. When there's a I, are we are we allowed to divulge the the fact of? Oh no, we should wait. Cooking? We should we should wait on that. Okay. But, um, you, you'll have to see the film to find out all the you know, yeah, find out the, the secrets. Film. Yes, but, in the um, film. 
Yeah, and you know, it, it, I, I, I always actually I was talking to Brandon about this yesterday, but after you know, Brandon and I both went to USC together. Um, we were randomly matched as freshman roommates um, by the school computer system or whatever, and we've been working together ever since. Um, so I've always said that you know, after we graduated from USC, we kind of went to grad school, which was just working on music videos and, and things like that. And then working on Jiro was sort of like our master class or something <laughs> like that, because, you know, it, 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 he, the lessons about hard work and this kind of patience and determination is, is really um, incredibly moving. And in the process of making the film, we've tried to apply that. And, you know, nobody knows this more than Brandon, who, you know, day after day is coming in and trying to refine, you know, trying to refine the structure of the film. And, you know, every day, you know, we're just throwing things away when, when it doesn't work. We just have to throw it away. And so you're feeling of... a little bit like Jiro, right, Brandon? Absolutely. <laughs> we're I mean... going to talk a little bit more about we have to take a short break. But when we come back, I want to talk about some of the challenges that you faced in making this film. We'll be right back. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 4.30 p.m., tune in to Burning Down the House. Architecture is the laser focus of Burning Down the House, a weekly discourse on all things built, destroyed, admired, and despised. Each week, Curtis B. Wayne, your host, invites a posse of authors, critics, builders, designers, and other architecture fiends to reflect on various topics related to perhaps the most functional of all art forms. Again, that's every Sunday at 4.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. And um, Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past with David Gelb and Brandon Driscoll-Luttinger, uh, the, edit- the director and editor, um, respectively, of... Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And it, funny, because when I first heard the title, I thought, mm, okay, but... He said he really does dream of sushi, dreams of better ways he can make it and new ways he can make it, correct? I mean, that- yeah, I mean, you know, he's, he's a true um, uh, innovator and, uh, like, you know, a real virtuoso. And, yeah, he, he describes in the film how he leaps out of bed in the middle of the night with, with visions of sushi and he would apply ideas from his dreams into his work. Weird. <laughs> but, weird, but that's okay. I mean, if it tastes good, I'll eat it. Uh, um, we you did a, you did a wonderful scene, um, and Brandon, I want to bring you in on this about of the tuna auction at the Tsuki. Uh, how do you pronounce it? Tsukiji. Tsukiji. Tsukiji fish market in Tokyo. It, that was a beautiful. That was a beautiful um, um, piece there on the fish market, and the auction. If anyone, I don't know if anyone's ever seen this, but I have seen different um, film clips of the of the fish market before but the way that you presented this one was beautiful and the auction 
scene of these huge tunas were incredible. The auctioneers, much like, you know, American auctioneers, they've got their sing-song, they've got their, their call-and-response kind of action going. But you set it to music. You, you let them be the music with gorgeous music behind it. It was like an opera. Brandon, how, I mean, this, this must have been a, a yet an extra challenge. I mean, what, how, do, how did you work on that? Well, it was really interesting because they actually use bells um, to pre, like basically as a precursor to the auction to get everyone's attention. Mm. Um, so they start ringing these bells slowly and then more fast, at a fast pace, and it brings it to kind of a, you know, this, this level of uh, kind of a, you know, a very intense moment. And so what we did was we found other m- music, which would basically build slowly with this, with this bell kind of resonating. And then build into the music with the bell and the actual, actually the guys um, with the actual bells. And, you know, the whole thing kind of builds up to the guys, you know, yelling all these, uh, all these um, auction. Yeah. I mean, it, it achieves a frenetic pace mm-hmm. that, you know, some of these, these livestock, fish and flower markets usually do in the auctions. You know, they just, it's, it, you know, this crazy pitch. Right, yeah. right, yeah, and then we built into drums and, and things, so it would, yeah, it would, the energy would rise along with the auction. Um, but of course, we started very slowly because you know there's, you know, the fish is just, and actually, you know, what in terms of history, the, the auction has actually not changed very much. It's, hmm. I mean, we had old stock footage that, you know, we use a little bit of in the film, and. They did it exactly 50 years ago, and you can see the, the motions, way, huh? the, yeah. everything is exactly the same way, except the tuna are actually a lot smaller now. Yeah, well, well that's, that <laughs> we know. We know from the fishing that that's a, it's a problem, things getting fished out, um, and a lot of it coming from a lot further away than, than the Japanese would, <laughs> would realize when they're eating their sushi. Well, let's talk a little bit about sushi. This, this is a culinary history show. We do have to focus on food here, oh, but the film is... The film is, is a food lover's dream as well. I mean, because you just, the shots are, are absolutely gorgeous. And sushi. I mean, sushi took over in New York, especially in the, I guess, the early 80s. It, it sort of, you know, had this huge wave of, of popularity. Um, David, what did you learn about sushi at all in, in Japan making this film? Well, you know, when sushi came to the United States, um, it changed quite a bit. I mean, sushi originally, you know, was sold from essentially street vendors, um, and that came in Japan. In, in Japan, in, in Japan, right. and it was the you know the back way way back in the day. Um, you know, the first incarnation of sushi um, was essentially preserved fish in rice. Um, the flavor of the rice, we know, would 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 seep into the fish, and they would use the rice as the rice fermented. It would kind of um, seal the fish in a way, and that was you know used as a kind of preserved snack for, you know, the army and, and things like that. Hmm. Um, but, you know, the flavor was actually kind of desirable, this idea of, you know, and, and then that kind of evolved into a street food in Tokyo in, in the 1800s. Um, when it came to the United States, we started seeing um, things like the California roll and integrating, um, you know, American um, food products like avocado, avocado right. and uh, kind of to fill the American appetite. Um, but back in Japan, you know, it was a very... Um, you know, a, a restaurants like Kyobashi Yoshino, which was one of the first, you know, great sushi restaurants, um, kind of, uh, that's, that's the way that we see sashimi today kind of came from that restaurant, and, you know, sashimi and various sushi appetizers, and a lot of the preparations of the fish, because, um, you know, it's not just fish and rice, and that's one of the biggest misconceptions about sushi, is that you can't just put fish on top of rice and, and really call it sushi. Um, the fish, in order to bring it to its 
point of ideal deliciousness, you know, requires um, a certain a certain degree of aging, keeping storing it at a certain temperature. Mm-hmm. In addition, just selecting you know fish that have good flavor, that fish that have been swimming in the channels that where they're eating delicious food and can build you know a, a good kind of fat structure and molecular structure that's going to be you know tasty and it's going to have good flavor. Jiro was the first sushi chef to serve only sushi. No sashimi, no other appetizers, nothing, just sushi. This is a departure. You know, and he worked at Kyobashi Yoshino, and a lot of the other greatest sushi chefs um, also worked with him or contemporaries at Kyobashi Yoshino. And when Jiro Jiro left, you know, he kind of had to, he had to, he, it took him a while to get to the point where he could really focus only on sushi. But all that he wants to do is just to make sushi pieces and that's all that he cares about hmm. he, he has no interest in sashimi anymore he has no interest in any kind of appetizers um you're allowed to order alcohol in the restaurant but he won't recommend it because he doesn't want it to alter dull your, taste, to dull right. your senses yeah. um or to alter the exactly yeah. so you know jiro kind of created the modern omakase omakase in this way which is the chef's course that is only sushi and there are some great sushi chefs in the United States who kind of are continuing this tradition. So, like um, Nozawa at Sushi Nozawa mm-hmm. in uh, Studio City is a chef who, when you his whole model motto is trust me, and you sit at the bar and he gives you maybe you know twenty pieces of sushi, and um, you know and that's it. It's, in it's fact, just some, sushi. People, some people even interpret omakase to mean trust me. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and, and, and that's absolutely correct. Trust the chef, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it, you were talking about um, the choosing the fish that you know have had a good diet that have swum in in in, um, clean waters and um, that's something i wanted to mention about the fish market that we didn't talk about and that was the way that the um those who are going to procure the the fish for the day choose their fish they use two items to choose their fish a flashlight Mm -hmm. And their fingers. I thought that was so amazing. Um, can you explain a little bit about that and what you observed? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the kind of the, the – this is actually one of the great things about Japanese culture is, the, uh, is this kind of devotion to specialization. So every ingredient that Jiro uses is created or you know, procured by, the, uh, by an absolute master in that field. So the rice is – he gets the rice from the, the special girl. from the rice Perfect. from the rice expert, <laughs> and the tuna comes from a guy who specializes only in tuna, and the shrimp from a guy who specializes only in shrimp. And Perfection so, once again, right? yeah. And so they spend you know just as much time as Jiro's apprentices do, you know, working on sushi. Uh, the, these these um, fish dealers are masters uh, of their of their fish. So you know, Jiro gets his fish from the world's best tuna dealer. His name is uh, Fujita, and who's fairly famous in Japan. Um, and he is the most discriminating tuna buyer, and you know, basically through you know vast experience, you know, having worked from, for his father before him, um, he can basically just take a little bit of uh, of tuna out of you know a little bit of meat out of the tail of a tuna. You know, they take the, they lay out the tunas and they cut the tails off, so you can examine a little bit of the tail, mm-hmm. and he can intuit just by, just sw- by rubbing, rubbing it in his fingers, fingers, smelling it, tasting it a little bit shining it with the flashlight, he can tell what the entire interior of the fish is going to look like. And he knows how that fish is going to age and mature over the next few days. So I don't know who the first one to do this is, but now in, you know, as I observed in the film, everyone was doing, you know, all the buyers were oh, picking sure. up on that idea. You, know, Absol- you just shine a light on it and feel it. Oh, absolutely. It and, 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 and that's, that, that's standard. But what the, the talent comes in being able to identify which, what is good from this little morsel. Is this a good fish or is it not a good fish? And, you know, um, 
Fujita just has the most impeccable taste, and Jiro refuses to buy tuna from anyone else. He doesn't trust anybody else. It's just Fujita. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, what I want to mention, because we don't run out of time, is talk about the music. The music throughout the film. I, I mean, I could not imagine more perfect music. That was. Um, tell me about what you picked and why. Well, we chose. Um, we we needed the music to be elevated, sort of like the the um, the sushi, like the art, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you know, this was a consideration in all of the you know in the cinematography as well. But um, yes, we chose um, orchestral pieces um, played by masters, you know, and, and and performed by masters and composed by masters. Like we have Tchaikovsky, um, Mozart, and Bach. And uh, we also have recordings from Philip Glass and Max Richter. I thought Glass and Richter, those two in particular, um, when you were doing a lot of the food preparation shots, were just were were perfect. And and you mentioned why you chose those. Oh yeah, well, th- 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 thematically they kind of mirror Jiro's work ethic. And um, Philip Glass music is sort of is 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 beautiful yet re- repetitive. Um, but always elevating and always reaching for the next level, sort of, and, and building upon itself. And this is kind of Jiro's sort of, his whole kind of philosophy is to do the same thing every day and just kind of looking for layers of improvement. And um, the other reason the, mu- the, the music works well is because of, you know, Brandon, who has edited maybe at least 100 music videos, uh, many of which, you know, have, you know, have millions of hits on, on well, the YouTube. Well, Brandon, it, it certainly came across. I mean, it was the, it's just matched perfectly and brilliantly what um what to you was the greatest challenge in in editing this film i mean it must have been i mean a month you you followed him right or then some a couple different times you were in japan um david was in japan filming for a month or more you must have had hundreds and hundreds of yards of footage that hit the floor so they say you know in the old days i've I've had (laughs) hundreds of yards before this film and with this film the biggest challenge was editing a film where i couldn't understand a word they were saying it was all subtitled so it was all in japanese however i actually found that that was a benefit later on when we were using classical music and having the japanese words with subtitles with this beautiful music it was very poetic um, to listen to because it almost the, the the Japanese language and the classical music works so well together, and I feel like if it was had been like narrated by an American or something with in English, you would have been hearing the voice and hearing the classical music, and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have uh, hit a note you know that resonated with you nearly as much. So when you're reading, um, and I really enjoy le- reading to classical music. Um, when you're reading the subtitles and hearing the voices, it all really comes together in a really great way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was. It turned out to be a benefit in terms of how the movie comes across and in, in in the way it sounds. Um, but it was very difficult um, for me to sit there and read a movie every single time. I watched it all day, every day, reading, 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 yeah. instead of just hearing. So yeah. that was the biggest challenge for me. Uh, well, you, uh, you did um, include some, some historical footage some, um, and from uh, I forget what, oh, oh, from, well, from Jiro's life, from his past life. Um, so you, you put, sort of few shots in there that's what i was gonna say that's where the story takes a very human turn and um didn't want to spend too much time talking about that but that that is a compelling feature of this film not just the food i must say it is indeed the human the human element uh, these there are two sons we didn't mention the first son first son can never be heir to i mean the second son can never be heir to the restaurant so he has his own restaurant but the first son has to wait until the father steps aside and this you know, and the father had a rough life. I mean, this is all just a, a wonderful father-son kind of relationship that you that you brought up. Um, 
I, I think that people come away with a lot from this film. And did you go in doing the to, to capture this human condition, or or is it all about food? First? Yeah, you know, um, the, the very very first incarnation of it was about it was about food, and the human element was just going to be kind of this pursuit of perfection. Um, when we chose to go with to make the film just about Jiro, I knew that something about his son. There was going to be some kind of drama with his son, um, and I wasn't I wasn't sure exactly what it was. And it's a very difficult kind of pitch for a movie. Um, but uh, you know, I went out uh, for one month in February of 2010, shot everything that I could, really everything that I could, and mm-hmm. then we came back and had everything subtitled. And then Brandon and I started building the story, and uh, we found that. Jiro's son was kind of becoming a main character. Was kind of becoming a main character in a way that we hadn't expected, and so we were really pleased that this human element was was re- was kind of ringing true and kind of forging the narrative. You know, forging the narrative using the, the this kind of father son story. And so, um, you know, I'm so happy that it came out like that because actually, you know, people have been coming up to us and saying, "I don't like sushi, yeah, but should, I like why this I movie." Watch the movie? Yeah, <laughs> but they say that they they now they say that they like the movie even though they don't like sushi. Right. And they want now they want to try sushi, and I think that's, you know, just the absolute greatest compliment. It's been so humbling that, you know, and I'm so thankful for Brandon for really being able to bring this, you know, helping to bring the story to the to the forefront of the film. Well, and you did the two of you did just an excellent job when before we leave, I want to um well, I want to urge people to see this. You, you were very fortunate. You've got Magnolia uh, Films have bought it for dis- uh, distribution here and Fortissimo uh, Nation- uh, uh, internationally. A, yeah, yeah. We have uh, Magnolia Pictures is going Pictures, to be yeah. rolling the film out into movie theaters across the United States, um, which is incredibly exciting. I mean, it's what we had dreamed of when we first started was having a theatrical release in the United States. Um, and then also abroad, your Fortissimo Films is going to be, you know, we have deals across Europe and in Asia. And uh, I'm just I'm just thrilled that um, people are going to be able to see sushi from Jiro's perspective around the world. Yeah. And uh, we have well, you to- should both feel very proud, too, because it's, it is a beautiful film and, a, and an excellent job and, and a testimony to Jiro because it is it. In like sushi, it's striving for perfection, and you did an absolutely wonderful job. I want to leave with something that Indie Wire wrote about the film, and that is, Jiro Dreams of Sushi is a mouth-watering love letter to sushi and a moving testament to the beauty of family, tradition, and the pursuit of perfection in one's work. And that pretty much wraps it up. You know, that, that's what it is. I want to thank, again, David Gelb and Brandon Driscoll Luttringer. Thank Get you. that right one of these days. <laughs> and thanks to Donna Gelb's mom for being with us, too. This has been Linda Palaccio on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. In 2010, EscapeMaker.com won an Emmy Award for their agritourism webisode. So this year they thought, why not bring agritourism and green getaway ideas right to you? Come to the Green Getaways Local Food and Travel Expo on April 30th at One Hanson Place, home of the Brooklyn Flea and former Williamsburg Savings Bank. 
Presented by Amtrak, Zipcar, and I Love New York, the carbon-free event will be a day filled with food, prizes, workshops, and kids' activities. Over 50 getaway destinations, from counties to local farms and bed and breakfast within a day's drive or train ride of New York City, will be exhibiting on the main floor and in the huge bank vault downstairs. See what's hot in sustainable travel and receive special show-only discounts. Grow NYC will be doing workshops on the green market, and Appalachian Mountain Club will offer workshops on adventure bicycling and hiking via mass transit. EscapeMaker.com will be giving away over 50 getaway prizes, ranging from zipline adventure passes to an overnight stay at Mohonk Mountain House. Travel greener, eat local. Come to the expo on April 30th. Get your tickets now at www.escapemaker.com. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway Honey today.